Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I. And we are here today to talk about two more Oscar nominees. We are going to be talking about The Whale and Living. Uh, Corwin Heller, are you ready to get started? I am ready. All right. Well, then we are going to be starting with The Whale. Uh, which was directed by Darren Aronofsky, written by Samuel D. Hunter, uh, who wrote the play that the film is based upon. The film stars Brendan Fraser, Sadie Sink, and Ty Simpkins, which I think is kind of an awkward order since Hong Chow is... Are you funny? Got it. Huh? What? Or, what'd you say? I didn't say anything. No, never mind then. Um... The film had an estimated budget of $10 million and a worldwide gross of $28.5 million. Um, So pretty decent success, especially in the midst of COVID still when it uh, was released and to be a relatively niche film, I suppose. Um, No tagline I can see to speak of. We are talking about the film today because it is currently nominated for three Oscars. It is nominated for Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling for Adrian Marat, uh, Judy Chin, and e- Anne-Marie Bradley. Um, however, the two nominees that we are more concerned with, as we cannot speak so much to the makeup and hairstyling part of things, uh, Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role from Brendan Fraser, and Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role for Hong Chow. The film is about a reclusive, morbidly obese English teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter. Uh, Corwin, you're on. Tell me what you thought. I, the only thing I knew uh, about this going in was that it was Brendan Fraser's uh, long-awaited return to the big screen. And you likely like myself grew up with him in the mummy and uh george of the jungle and uh what else was he in that we would know several episodes of scrubs (laughs) very fair uh he was what the brother yes yeah he was dr cox's wife's brother um i was very excited to see this because i've always really appreciated you know his energy and and aura that he brings to the fun roles that I've seen him in and and this by the one repeated screenshot that we saw ad nauseum for months on end uh, did not seem like that kind of film Um, and it absolutely broke my heart with his portrayal of Charlie and the emotions that he brought to this role the way he was able to bring out deep emotional responses in me in regards to a subject matter that I personally don't have any connection with. I I have never lived through any of these experiences um, portrayed in this. Uh, I don't really know anyone who has, or, or, you know, like I said, been able to experience anything that he's going through. But he was able to draw out such illicit responses through, through just, I guess charisma would be the right word, and, and his abilities. I mean, don't get me wrong, um, 
everyone in this was uh, they gave out an, an excellent performance. Um, Sadie Sink was awesome. Hong Chow was very, very good. Um, I really loved this story and um, what it brought out. Um, I have uh, conflicting feelings on this movie because I think Brendan Fraser does a really nice job. And there are several moments in his performance that made me tear up. But I also think this is not a good movie. And I heavily push back on Sadie Sink's performance. I think she is that is one of the worst acted performances I've I've seen this year. I think she's horrendously bad in this movie. Um You she, don't like uh angry kid being angry kid in your face the whole time? it's it's not even that she plays angry she plays angry in a way that you'd assume she was never 15 and yet that's basically her current age it's it's a cartoonish portrayal of the any angsty teenager such to a point where she's angry about nothing like it it's it's wooden in that it is like it monotonous she's stuck in this this rote repetitiveness of just maximalist teenager angst that is not well done um in the slightest i think hong chow is is solid in this and i think the other supporting actors are generally not great um but what i guess let's are there? uh well the, the, the one main kid I was gonna say the, the main other guy, Ty Simpkins, who plays Thomas, and then uh Samantha Morton, who plays uh Mary, the the wife of uh ex-wife, I guess, of Brendan Fraser's character. Um so I I guess let's get into it. It is um were you aware of the fact that this is based on a play prior to watching it? No. Okay, yeah, neither neither was I. Um how fast did you realize while watching it was based on a play? <laughs> Uh, it wasn't until right now, but understanding the set and all of that, it makes sense. Yeah, I, I had the realization during the theater when I was like, oh, hey, they're never going to leave this apartment, are they? Oh, that must be why everything sounds like a play. And it's it's blocked quite like a play. Um, the, the film is essentially about uh, Brendan Fraser's character was... Uh, Married to a woman, had a kid, Sadie Sink, working as an English teacher. Eventually uh, had his homosexuality dawn upon him and fell in love and ran off with one of his English students. Um, that man then eventually died because of the uh, castigations of his family, um, one of whom is uh, Hong Chow, although she was not antagonistic about his lifestyle. It was the the parents. Um Hong Chow playing a nurse at a nearby hospital who comes and helps out Brendan Fraser's character in his day-to-day -day existence. Uh, and Brendan Fraser is essentially, not essentially, literally eating himself to death while trying to make a last-ditch effort to connect with Hong Chow, or with um, Sadie Sink, his, his daughter. Uh, I mean, there's really... It's kind of it, honestly. It, it's a it's a weird movie to discuss it's because not 
it, not a lot happens in the movie, which I think is partially to its detriment. I mean, it's a it, it feels. I remember when we talked about Fight Club a few months ago, must have been, or maybe even longer. Josh, uh, Josh, we didn't talk about Fight Club. You do not talk about Fight Club. What a winning joke. Has not lost any of its muster over the last 25 Hell years. Yeah. Hell um, yeah. We had talked about how like it's an interesting look at uh like a, a, a type of philosophy that is very much so expired. You know, it, it's it's stale. It's a fun movie, but it's 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 very locked into its era. This movie feels like it was made in 1993 with how it handles homosexuality and religion, which is uh, not really at all. It 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 the introspection is about skin deep and is kind of lackluster. I mean, you don't really get too much interiority to it. it it's really just like, oh, my my boyfriend's parents were high up in a church. They didn't like that. Uh, he ended up dying or killing himself, rather. Uh, and uh, I am now a sad man who punishes himself with food. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's not hard to get. And there's some weirdness with not letting the outward expression of homosexuality be a very big deal like it's it's so locked away that it almost feels irrelevant in a weird way uh, you you connected with it in in some some various aspects i want to hear where you connected with it um i felt like the Brendan Fraser basically coming to terms with understanding that he has, you know, days to live and trying to do, you know, and more I think about it, trying to spend his last days trying to reconnect with his daughter, who, you know, is the singular focus of, of the work that he does and and how do I put it just the when he goes to work every day he I shouldn't say that because he doesn't go to work every day when he logs into work every day it is for the sole purpose of being able to provide for his daughter someday and him coming to terms with well I am not going to be here more than a few days out. I haven't seen my daughter in nine years. I need to figure this shit out. It, the kind of tidal wave of all of that needing to come together swiftly and his portrayal of, you know, going through those final steps and, and going through that realization, going through the kind of denial of the fact that he can prolong this step and prolong this endeavor for whatever reason he feels like he is unable to do so. I connected with that almost raw emotion that he's bringing to this. Thinking back, I have questions. 
that I feel like I had repressed during the initial watch for the sake of, oh, they'll figure this out later and, and explain it. Um, how does he, how does she show up at his house? Who, Han Chow or Sadie Sink? Sorry, Sadie Sink, because I don't recall him ever reaching out. She just kind of shows up one day. Hey, I'm your daughter. I don't, I don't comprehend. Um, honestly, I have, I saw this movie like two months ago and didn't feel like rewatching it because I wasn't a huge fan. <laughs> so I don't sure. remember, I don't remember why she showed up the first time or how she, how she had like gotten there. suspended in the morning and like that morning and then just shows up at his house. And I don't remember why, but I guess it's a little detail. Yeah. I don't remember why either. Um, I will offer that this movie, this is plot contrivances, the movie. Um, Hong Chao tells him in the, uh, the movie is told in a series of chapters, essentially that are the seven days or so leading up to Charlie's death. And Hong Chao tells him in the first day, like, Oh, Charlie, if you don't stop eating like this, you're going to, you're not going to last the, the, to the weekend. And uh, it's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. How she makes this diagnosis with, um, I mean, basically no real uh, ability to to take a form. I'm not like I'm not saying it's hard to diagnose someone who's exceedingly <laughs> morbidly obese as as being unhealthy, but she like she she says you're not going to survive to the weekend, and then he doesn't. It's like uh, we need to establish a I timeline have... for these events to have to take place in, and uh, here you go. I have to imagine, seeing as this is, you know, initially a play and all that, that that is merely just a storytelling device of like, hey. Well, exactly. Plot contrivance, a, the yeah. movie. It's a plot. It's okay. a it's a con- right. it's contrived I, just to, to advance the plot. Which brings me to the one of the next things, which is uh, Brendan Fraser, how Brendan Fraser is able to allay the onset of a heart attack is by having strangers read to him his his, his daughter's middle school essay on Moby Dick. Which, let me tell you, folks, this is why I think Brendan Fraser really does deserve this Oscar nomination, because he sells these moments hard. But if you think about that, just like sit back and chew on it, that's the most stupid fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. He comes down from congestive heart failure, which they're treating like it's a panic attack, by having a stranger read to him his daughter's middle school essay on Herman Melville's Moby Dick. It's absolutely ridiculously stupid. I really understood the like, oh, that's something that calms him down and would like, all right, get like your breathing in order, get your focus in order. Like if you were having a panic attack, that makes a lot of sense. I really wanted to discuss this with you. Obviously, we have now reached the entire discussion that I was planning on having, but like you can't do that with a heart attack, right? Like once that starts, you're in it, right? Well, I yes. really wish they gave something. I don't know. I've never had a heart attack. Yes, not only that, but like, <laughs> to imagine. 
Every time you see a defibrillator in like a TV show or a movie, you know, it's always when someone has already flatlined, which is medically incorrect. Once someone has flatlined, a defibrillator wouldn't do anything and no one does it, right? Defibrillators are instead used when someone is entering the stage of cardiac arrest, when their heart rate is getting unstable or very, very low. So the point, which is one would assume the point at which Brendan Fraser is like collapsing onto the floor, begging someone to read him his daughter's fucking English paper. Um, that's when, like, we're talking defibrillator point. We're not talking about, like, ooh, gotta slow down the heart rate to save the last few beats for the end of this movie. Like, it's it's dumb. It's it's bad. Um, and and that's that's the whole movie. The whole it, it is it is plot contrivances and heavy handed nonsense. Like the fact that he quite literally locks up the gay portion of himself in another room. Like it might as well be a, a literal closet. You know what I mean? Like he's locked it all the way and suppressed it all down. It's it's nuts. Um, there is, though, and this is I had the same feeling that you did. I walked out of the movie with a relatively good opinion of it. And then the longer it sat with me, the more I was like, wow, everything about this was terrible because Brendan Fraser does so much heavy lifting for the film. He really he is so well cast in the picture because of, I think, our, our mutual societal understanding of how he got here. Mm-hmm. And there is this this sadness behind the eyes where it feels like the desperation with which he delivers his lines isn't just character. It's also Brendan being like, I need this. And it hits. It really does hit. It's just the once you kind of look at everything else, like... I mean, like, there's one moment in early on where he like is feeling sad, and he's standing in his kitchen, and he opens up one bar, one one uh drawer in his kitchen, and it's loaded with like healthy snacks, mm-hmm. and he picks one up, and he's like, oh, and then closes it and opens <laughs> up the drawer with all the candy bars, and starts demolishing Three Musketeers like it's nobody's business, and it's like, oh my god, that's so fucking stupid! It's so fucking stupid! It's so fucking stupid that you want me to think that this guy has the, the healthy snacks in the first place, like. It was a uh, it was a junk drawer with like a bunch of mail and like bullshit and then just like one healthy bar just like crammed in the corner just sticking out right on top. But yeah, like the thing that got me was like you don't accidentally open the non candy drawer. This he knows especially. where the candy is. Yeah, yeah, like he knows where the candy is. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I found the moments where Brendan Fraser gets to interact with everybody, like the the really, really sparse characters, the pizza delivery man, especially. I found that the most touching because there's so much less going on there. And the film kind of gets to operate without so much of the 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 exceedingly heavy hand that the rest of the film operates with. Like the, the, the more gentle idea mm-hmm. of just like it's a guy who's embarrassed about being this big, you know, he he musters up you know the he, he orders the pizzas because he is, has a, an eating disorder and a compulsion to do so but he he feels scared and embarrassed and, and and ashamed about actually being seen by another human being that he doesn't know like that part really worked for me like i really felt that but it, it's the oh man it is the how else how long do you think he spent in his apartment because there's no way he was making it up and down the stairs um how long do you think it's been? How many years do you think it's been since he last left the apartment? Oh man, I uh, it's got to be a good number, right? Like I'll say, yeah, 
I'll say at least five. I'm trying I don't to think the they timeline gave us of the like film. a t- yeah. I don't think they ever gave us a clear timeline on how long it's been since. Because Sadie Sink was what, what they said a number, right? They said like six or eight or something when he left. She was eight when he left, and it right. had been nine years since they were all together. I remember right because she was looking at colleges, right? So. If you think you know, it takes a, 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 a I don't know a couple of years to settle into a home that you stay in, and then the death happens, and then he doesn't leave. I think five years is probably a pretty fair estimate. He spent four years before that happening in love, something like that. Yeah, um, I think five to like seven years would be a fair window. Yeah, I I would think that that's that that's fair too. I I can, I mean, listen, growing up, I was as introverted as can be and, and did not enjoy leaving the house. Um, nowadays, I can't go a weekend at all. Like a day, sure, I can go a day without leaving my apartment. I can't go a weekend. I could not imagine going five years without leaving. And granted, that is the crux of the issue and you know the struggle at hand but that is an undersold aspect of this film that it's never mentioned but the more you think about it that is devastating never getting that fresh sunlight never getting that fresh air never going out and you know spending time amongst you know society and and there's something that that brings to your life that fulfills some aspect of the human condition that it must be challenging is a an understatement of of what that would be without which is which is one of the reasons i i think this character is ultimately a little bit unsuccessful as as a, as a written character uh because brendan fraser seems to be a very personable guy he he works in a in a job that requires him to be relatively personable obviously there's there's the shyness around the weight which you'd assume would 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 shun somebody in but there's there's so there's so many character traits that are a little bit at odds with each other that make him i think a little bit un- like he has so much love to to give and he is is so caring and tender with the people that he interacts with that come into the home but there's also no willingness to to leave and i get that it, it is out of the embarrassment or, or, the, or the shame of of weight and even the logistics of navigating down down the steps but i, I mean it, it's not like it's impossible to do and the, like the motivations are a little bit kind of i think all over the place like the idea that he is literally in the film killing himself in some martyr like fashion and yet also it, talking about how much he loves his daughter and just wants to see her succeed. Mm-hmm. But apparently the love that he has for her does not supersede the pain he feels from losing a, a man that he knew for significantly less time and has much less connection to than his literal biological kin, which is a tough sell. Yeah, I mean, the premise or, or the idea of it being just a complete surrender of himself like that. Like, yeah, he has the money to kind of make a difference for himself and, and be in her life for a long term, which is seemingly what she needs more than money. It's tough because he's given up on the idea of him living an, an extended life. He 
he almost wants to eat himself to death and wants to end the suffering that he's going through, you know, with his struggle and with his situation. But it's it's almost like an empty gesture when you realize, you know, what she needs is a father, not cash. Cash goes a long way, but it's it can't fulfill what, you know, the kind of loving parenthood that she is currently lacking. Well, and that's one of the other things that, that the, the movie brings up so many ideas that it kind of just like discards, which is like that Sadie sings like, you don't send me money. And Brendan Fraser's like, I send you money all the time. What the fuck are you talking about? And then the mom comes into the picture and he, and she's an alcoholic, which is a whole can of worms. And she's been keeping some of the money or drinking it away. It's kind of unclear. And that's a whole can of worms. And then it's like, raises a bunch of questions about how Sadie Sink's life is going to be after this, which again is kind of like, I'm not trying to like completely write off the idea of the, the, the profound sadness that comes with loss, but it is so unexplored in the film as a whole, because it's not just, and this is where I say the homosexuality of the film kind of gets really buried, which is that it's not just that Brendan Fraser has like, met someone that he absolutely adored and that person died it's weird that he also understood himself to to be a gay man later in life and after his first partner very tragically does pass away he just completely abandons that entire side of himself in favor of being rampantly lonely and it is it is weird it's it's a very weird thing especially considering the very recent history of the homosexual population in America as of the last 40 years, as they have been ravaged by the AIDS crisis, you know, like, like there, it, it is, there, there is a, a pride, hence the pride parades that, that are take place as uh that comes with being associated with this group of people who has had to suffer and, and, and learn who they are for so much of their lives and, and learn to be accepted and learn to not care if they're not accepted or how to progress in their lives beyond that, that this film just kind of doesn't do in like a really strange way. It's basically saying like, I found out I was gay. I fucked one guy. He's out of here. Uh, I'm done being alive. And it's, it, it makes it kind of hard to, to accept the character as a real person. I guess I'm, let's talk about some of the other characters. Sorry, I'll, I'll, you can go ahead and respond. I don't want to. I'm coming to terms with the idea that if this was any other actor, uh, you know, other, any other, it's a big list. I don't want to say that, but if this was any other C-list actor in this role, I think this would by all means, probably be a straight-up bad movie. I know you don't like it. I enjoyed it. But I don't think there would be much, if any, redeemable qualities to this film if it wasn't for the absolute titan performance of Brendan Fraser. I will say his performance and the cinematographer doing a really good job. Very um, fair. Not just with the lighting and the atmosphere, but... I mean, the scenes where Brendan Fraser is eating very aggressively, like they mm-hmm. look weirdly horrific. It is uh, it, it is, it, it is shot. Harsh, the harsh lighting from the refrigerator when he's just sitting there with a box of pizza 
just dumping ranch on it. Just that, that is absolutely a shot that you could turn into a horror film. And but that's one of the funny things though, is if like if you think about what that shot is, it's fucking lunacy. Like yeah. they are it's so it's so melodramatic. It's a well, well shot and well acted scene, but it is also like on the page absolutely fucking ridiculous. That that that's kind of like that's the weird part about the movie. It is surface level pretty decent, and then sit and think about it. Ooh, this isn't great. Um so be- before we move off this point, I have a non sequitur here that I just cannot get over. I wanted to have a better example other than anyone else in this role. So I Googled C-list actors, thinking I would get a bunch of mid-tier actors in Hollywood who you know I could pull somebody from that would be a good comparison. Number one was Robert Pattinson. Oh, What? And I'm just going to go down the list that Google gave me because it's it's just a straight list. Robert Pattinson, Jennifer Lawrence, Lindsay Lohan, George Clooney, Jim Carrey, Chris Colfer, Jennifer Connelly, Timothy Oliphant, James Cromwell, Alec Baldwin, Neve Campbell, Katie Cassidy, Colin Hanks, Catherine Heigl, Charlie Carver, James Spader, Danny Trejo, John Malkovich, and Tom Hardy. There are like several Oscar wins and nominations <laughs> in that group. There are some C-list actors in there. The vast majority, vast majority are like A-list like superstars. That's amazing. What a list. Yeah, you'd expect to see a name like Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> You know, like someone kind of irrelevant that you also kind of know the name of. It's Steven Seagal. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, I wanted yeah. to talk about the 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 other character with a significant amount of screen time that we haven't gotten to yet, which is uh, Ty Simpson Simpkins. Jesus, sorry. Uh, playing Thomas, the missionary from the church down the road with a naughty secret. Um. Basically, this guy knocks. It's it's kind of like the first, um, outside character. I guess the second outside character who comes in. Um, we meet him very dramatically on a rainy day. Um, no, he's the first. I think he shows up. Does he show up concurrently? No, Hong Chao shows, shows up. up. He yeah. shows up right before Hong Chao shows up. Yeah, you're right. Right, 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 right. Um, basically, he claims to be working for a, a mission down the road. Um. He comes and talks to Brendan Fraser a lot. He talks with Sadie Sink a lot. Uh, she does some like internet sleuthing and finds out he's not from the church down the road. Turns out he's actually from some mission, or some town somewhere the fuck else. I don't remember. Um, and stole a bunch of a bunch. Stole really not that much money. <laughs> Came out here is pretending to do mission work. Um, and ends up going home after his parents reach out and are like, "We love you. Just come back. It's just money." Um, and then Brendan Fraser's like, Sadie Sink's a good girl after all. She, she, she didn't have to do that. Um, what did you make of Tyler Simpkins' performance and his character's arc during the film? Um, 
I don't want to say it was an empty performance, but I don't think he brought anything that really made a difference to the film. And the arc, I think, it felt almost wasted, man. The when he comes in at the end with uh, Brendan Fraser's boyfriend's Bible, claiming that he had found this epiphany or Sadie brought him to this epiphany moment and he knows how he can help him and he knows what he has to do. And then he spit, he immediately jumps back into spitting out like hardcore evangelical Christian, you know, beliefs about salvation. It's just like, I don't, I don't think you did make any progress. I don't think your character arc has really done anything other than got someone to tell your, got someone to have your parents reach out and say, it's okay if you come home like that. That is something that could have righted itself without any involvement from any character in this story. Yeah, that and he is likely still going to go home and just be an evangelical Christian and vote for anti-gay rights shit. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really... My not sure is his candidate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the performance is kind of weird because it's an off... It's like a relatively stilted kind of like so bland and barely acted performance that it's kind of weird. But at the same time, if you think about what Mormon-esque missionaries are like when they come to your door, that's kind of how they actually are. So one would say that probably is a pretty accurate portrayal for what they're going for. The problem is that that's not necessarily compelling. It's tough to lay emotions on someone who is, I think, intentionally trying to suppress them. For the for sake of the 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 character, um, and then like 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 you said, it's kind of it's kind of hollow. It it is it is nice to see that part of like Brennan Fraser being like, I'm not getting God involved in this. Like, I am who I am. I've talked to those people. They seem nice. I'm not about it. It's it's all good. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I do enjoy at the end how Brendan Fraser's like, I really would like to sit down and have a conversation with you. And then the kid starts spilling, you know, on and on about it. And he's just like, actually, I don't want to have a conversation with you. We're done here. Get out. It feels like he is just there. Not feels like he is just there to serve as a vehicle to let Hong Chow give you more backstory. Like the 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 scene of her smoking Ooh. a cigarette, sitting on the balcony, being like, "Yeah, yeah, you know about that church down the road? <sighs> yeah, my brother belonged to that church, and he was gay, and they basically made him kill himself. My brother, that was Charlie's husband, Charlie's boyfriend, or whatever. And it's like, you know what? This movie didn't need plot twists. Uh, didn't didn't need them. Uh, it doesn't make me feel any different about this character's progression." You know what I mean? It's like the movie's saying, like, God, we don't think the love thing's enough to make you understand why this guy's so sad. You know what else he got pissed off by or or, or got sad by? God. You know, it wasn't I... just love. It was also his family, both sides, his his uh, basically his in-laws and his own family, and God. Uh, uh, 
man. I appreciate a fair amount of the backstory that you were saying, like having that exposition gave us. But nah, I didn't re- I didn't think about it until just now that he is just a a pure vehicle for us to get that. And that's just like, well, there are better ways to do that. Because the, the minute that there's no more to Charlie to learn mm-hmm. via this character that doesn't know him, he leaves the movie. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, why not really... just go ahead? Go ahead. I was just gonna say they, they literally are like, here's a bus ticket back to who gives a fuck? Get out of here. Bye. If he really was just that vehicle for exposition, why not just have that be Sadie Sink's character? That's what one would think because she because also doesn't would know much give of that her part of some his life. level of understanding, and she could have some, like outside of just the final moment being actually I do love you and want you here. Oh, you now have context for why he is the way he is and why he did the things he did. And oh, we can reach some understanding from both sides. Oh, we have an actual. Okay. Yep. Sure. Sure. Yeah. sure. And, and, you know, that would involve her character being a little bit more sympathetic. And, you know, she is supposed to be Ahab in this world. And Brendan Fraser is supposed to be Moby Dick in this world. And so they are meant to have an adversarial relationship with some level of understanding being reached upon the the death of the whale. Um, so to keep the metaphor so stringently intact, you can't have her be any level of sympath- sympathetic. Um and Sadie Sink doesn't play it like that. She plays it like she is a hardened sea captain uh, trying to go kill a whale. You know, like, it, it, ah, God, it is just. Oh, it is not good. It is really, really not great. And because at the end of the day, it, it doesn't it doesn't say anything. and It doesn't it doesn't do anything especially well. Brendan Fraser, Brendan Fraser's performance is a good one. I truly do believe that despite people pushing back, I think because the movie is so heavy handed, I do think he did a good job. He's over the top, but I think the movie needed him to be like that because that was the only way you were going to feel anything during this movie. But it is just on. It's an ineffective script. I'm with you hundred percent. I would not have changed anything of his performance, but it's, I don't want to say it's a wasted role because of what he was able to do and, and open that door back up. Yeah, like he basically kicked the door in rather than, you know, open the door. Um, but, uh, God, imagine this performance in, you know, pick another movie, any movie. I know. I just, I hope he, I hope he comes back at least part time to Hollywood and gives us every couple of years another fulfilling role it'd be nice to see him work with some uh some some directors who do some interesting shit you know i'd love to see him as a supporting role in, in more stuff uh give some of those big like baby blue sad ass eyes <laughs> um he he really he did a, he did a lovely job um much has been made, however, about the, um, at least at the time, I should say, much had much had been made about the prosthesis that he was wearing. Uh, some people saying that, you know, why couldn't you just cast uh, 
a gay actor, why couldn't you just cast a, a genuinely obese actor? Um, which I find to be a... I don't... I, don't, I always waffle on this a little bit because I, I, cause I don't think it's quite as cut and dry as always abiding by the uh, labels of the characters, you know, because sometimes it makes sense not to do that. Um, like I remember there was, um, did you ever watch the show transparent? Mm-hmm. I believe it was, uh, Lily Wachowski's show. Yeah. You know, Lily Wachowski, who was a, a, a mm-hmm. trans woman. And, Matrix, yeah. yeah and, and a big time director. And she cast, um, Oh, maybe she's just one of the producers. I don't really remember. It doesn't matter. Jeffrey Tambor plays the lead role in that show as the the parent who becomes trans, and hence the name Transparent. And much was made about the casting of Jeffrey Tambor in that show because it's like, well, why can't you just really cast a trans woman, right? Well, mm-hmm. and the explanation from the showrunners was essentially the idea of seeing someone that you know so well as a masculine figure becoming trans is part of the experience as someone on the outside. And so as much as uh, uh, as important as it was to tell the story of someone transitioning, it was equally important to re- to relay those feelings of uh, a shifting familiarity to the viewers and then to the, the supporting cast to get their reactions as well, which is why having someone recognizable like Jeffrey Tambor was important to the creator of the show at the time. And I, I, I think that. that makes a lot of sense, makes total sense. And I do think there's some of that in having a guy like Brendan Fraser be in this role uh not that he is gay but but because there is this um metamorphic quality to his career and to understand that the idea of the character having once conceived of himself as straight and at some point losing that is it, it, because at the end of the day sexuality is is constantly changing you know what i mean it, it is nebulous you don't have to be so hard lined on things you could think that you're gay and end up being bisexual you know like like it, there's no to, to put lines in the sand as such feels kind of silly and so to that end i think having brendan fraser be in this performance where his being gay at the moment is obviously important but also his having once been straight and being been seen as such a confidently straight person was also important you know what i mean um, of the yeah. prosthesis, what do you think about the um? What do you think of one how it was done, which apparently received an Oscar nomination? I didn't realize, but whatever. Um, and then two about the idea of well, why did they just hire a true obese person? Um, I I thought it was a good prosthesis. It seemed to. I don't know, you know, the specifics of how they utilized it and, and the actual weight that it carried, but it seemed to operate functionally as a, a significant amount of weight to be carried around, which I think what was needed. Um, I mean, I can't speak to the, like, I don't know, like I've never weighed 800 pounds. I don't know if that's as realistic as it could and should have been. But as a viewer, it seems wholeheartedly that Brendan Fraser was 800 pounds. And I think that, you know, at the bare minimum, for someone who is not, uh, I don't know, it it fits the bill for me. 
Yeah, again, this is one of those instances where I I, uh, I completely understand the point, and I, but I don't think it is quite hard-lined. I think part of what, one, for my own two questions I asked you, for the first one, I, I think the prosthesis was, was very well done in that it didn't look like necessarily comical, and, and I, I, I didn't, I never got distracted by it. I'll put it that way. Um, but what I also think is effective about it in the film and why I think it was the right decision to ultimately go with a prosthesis rather than someone who is just morbidly obese is that the way that the weight hangs, I think was very specifically done to achieve a look of massive discomfort. Um, and discomfort for both Brendan Fraser and for us, like the way that his weight, his, his gut hung to his goddamn knees. Right. And the, the, the swaying and the swelling that that was meant to, um, express, I think required a prosthesis, whether you got someone who was morbidly obese and added on to their already existing body type to achieve that look or not. I think that, like ridiculous not ridiculous but that like immensity was important to the character design in a way that it was again going to need a prosthesis no matter whether you had a fat actor or a relatively more trim actor and if that's the case and you're already doing it i don't see why it matters you know what i mean yeah i mean we both very much agree that if you had any other actor other than brendan fraser this film would be significantly worse I don't know why you would want to put yourself in a position to kind of set yourself up for a worse performance just to have that authenticity of something that is easily achievable with, you know, prosthesis. You know, this is not a story meant to be you know this documentary of what it's like to live as you know someone who is that morbidly obese it's a story of you know trying to find yourself and, and find worth after you know heartbreak and grief and, and family and all like that no, nothing that is solely grounded in the premise of being obese that brendan fraser would not be able to find the context and you know emotional foundation of because he was you know 10 pounds overweight rather than 400 pounds overweight right and i i think playing this game is of you know making sure that everyone checks all the boxes of their character Slippery slope. Is, I, I wouldn't say slippery slope necessarily. I, just, I don't think it's as black and white as it need, as it is. Like sometimes it does matter. Sometimes you need a, a gay actor to play a gay part, uh, 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 Jewish actor to play a Jewish part, or you know, a, a, a heavy actor to play a, a heavy person part. You know what I mean? Like sometimes that is needed because it, it it is there there is a, a didactic nature to a performance that you you are going to rely upon that um that that actor's background to a certain extent but i i i don't think it's universal in that way but whatever whatever um do you have any other oh the ending i guess let's talk about the ending and then we'll do ratings and reviews on it 
So essentially, we're at the final day, and it's like today's the day Charlie dies because that's what Hong Chao said at the beginning of the movie. Um, and uh, Sadie Singh comes over, um, and Brendan Fraser is like not doing hot, uh, and she keeps she is kept up with this like, um, with this you gotta stand up and walk to me. She's like she keeps making him do physical things, like kind of. D- teasingly in a, in a weird way um and so she she comes over to visit him again and and she, he had uh written her uh he had replaced her writ, rewritten essay um with the eighth grade version i think of her of her moby dick essay like she had to write a, another essay about something and he just like put the Moby Dick essay in it again. It was, uh, it was dumb. It was really stupid. Uh, anyway, um, he like uh, confides in her, like, you're such a good writer. I love you so much. Um, and, and Sadie sink is like trying to learn how to act and not doing a great job. Um, she then like starts to leave and then she turns around and, and stands in the doorway and, uh, Brennan Fraser is like, I'm going to walk to you, but you got to read the essay while I do it. And she's like, okay. And she reads this essay that you read in this movie now, like, I don't know, three or four times. And it's not that compelling because it's supposed to be having been written by an eighth grader. And uh, he walks towards her. And then just as he like reaches her, he floats into heaven, the background of a white light, fades into a family beach memory trip and the movie ends. <laughs> I laughed because it, it basically was a, uh, she really wanted him to like get up and walk up to him. And he's like, I will prove this to you. While in reality, he's just like, championing the fact that his heart is exploding in front of his daughter and that must be the single most traumatizing thing that you could possibly do that's what i'm saying about the movie like every choice that charlie makes is in like direct competition with what is in the best interest of his daughter he essentially commits suicide in front of his daughter and she has to live with that she has to live the rest of her life with that she is going to be able to write such emotional things after this. He's going to be so happy looking down, watching her be able to write about this experience. Just like, well, might, I, might I also I add for her? Might I also add real quick? I it because it bothered me so much during the movie. It's one of the few things that I really hated during the film. In addition to Sadie Sink's performance, the advice he gave his his writing class was fucking garbage absolute garbage It is all the things a writer should never do you know what a writer shouldn't do whatever the fuck they want regardless of what other people say because editing and and uh, understanding your audience and understanding how to uh, communicate yourself effectively and understanding the basic guidelines of what it means to write and how to write is important Otherwise, if you're just an uppity asshole who refuses to take criticism and refuses to have your books edited or what your your words edited or and to understand the communication of language and the poetry that is that that is meant to evoke is how you get a selfish writer. Like 
that that's that it's horrible advice horrible so if she grows up to be a good writer it will not be on the back of her dad's crap ass advice then it will be because of the emotional trauma she experienced at his behalf of her father killing himself because he loved both her and the man that took him away from her oof oof magoof yeah it's uh it's an ending that's for sure <laughs> um final ratings and reviews uh corwin you start at the top so why don't you start here uh just <laughs> i don't know how to give this a rating because like the movie itself the more we discuss it the I'm amazing how quick the uh, the shine wears off of everything other than Brendan Fraser. You should absolutely go watch this solely to see his role. It's in my mind. Uh, let me look at the dual seat real quick. Uh, best lead actor. Man, it's certainly not Austin Butler. I think he would be my favorite to win it. Uh, him and Colin Farrell are are right there. Um, but uh, it's not a good film. So maybe like a three. Yeah, this is it's a hard three to give because I don't think it deserves a three. But I was about to say the same thing about two. Like like, I want to give it two, but two still feels generous. But it 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 also feels right because if you watch this and ju- just for Brendan Fraser's performance, and I'm not even trying to say it's like a Anthony Hopkins esque performance in like the father. Like I'm not even trying right. to say that like it, it, it is a very good performance though, that I, it, it might just be, no, I, I, I think I genuinely did enjoy it. I was going to say, maybe it was just in contrast to how bad everything else was, but it is genuinely a good performance. And so if you watch it and, and you're just like a you know, Oscars completionist, or you want to see what the, the, the discourse around the film has been about, uh, if you watch it just being like the movie's bad, but Brendan Fraser's performance is 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 noteworthy, then uh, yeah, I don't think you're gonna like. And even even you know what, this is why it's a hard two to give, but it's also an easy two to give. The movie does go down pretty smooth because while it is bad, it is not in my eyes. It is not horribly long, and it is paced relatively well. Like I don't think any individual part of it drags. Oh, it's actually two hours. It didn't feel that long. No, it goes by quick. Yeah, I, I I do think it's overwrought. I I think the dialogue is so shitty. I I I think Sadie Singh's performance is like punishable by death. Like it's so bad. Uh, but I, the movie like it it moves along. It moves right along at a nice clip. Um, but man, is it unsuccessful for me? So. That's that's the whale. Um, all right, so that brings us to Living. Living is kind of a weird movie because it is not widely available. It is so far the only film that we uh, are going to talk about that is not available for streaming, even if you want to pay money for it. Like it's not it's not out there. And in terms of its theatrical release, it was it's not very broad here in the U.S. at least. So. Getting access to it had been difficult, which is why I was able to see it and Corwin was not because my local independent nonprofit theater was showing all the Oscar nomination nominated films. So I it was there. But it, that is a 
niche thing and Corwin wasn't able to grab it. So we're we're going to chit chat about it kind of loosely, but it'll be a little bit more of my opinions and less of Corwin's. Although how is that ever different? Um, <laughs> Touche. Anywho. <laughs> so uh, living was directed by Oliver Hermanus. Uh, written by Kazuo Ishiguro, based on the screenplay of Akira Kurosawa. We'll get to that. The film stars Bill Nye, or Bill Nye. I never know how to pronounce his name. I haven't heard anyone say it yet. Um, Amy Lou Wood and Bill Alex Sharp. Nye. It is Nye. Great. Thank you. Because I, yeah, I've, I have yet to hear anyone else say it, at least recently that I could think of. So thank you. Thank you. Um, the film had a uh oh shit i actually don't see budget budget don't see a budget who knows how much it costs not this guy uh worldwide gross of about 10 million dollars though um i i have to imagine it costs more than that because it is a period piece and even just like renting the cars and paying the salaries feels like it would probably cost more than that but i do no, not no. know they, they account for inflation so that's all you know time period specific race fuck you that was awful 99 percent um, of my joke yeah that's true you are awful yeah that's a good point i didn't think about that um <laughs> love you buddy uh, the film, we're talking about it because it is currently nominated for two Oscars. It's been nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Bill Nighy and Best Adapted Screenplay for Kazuo Ishiguro. The film is about, uh, in 1950s London, a humorless civil servant decides to take time off work to experience life after receiving a grim diagnosis. Um, again, since Corwin has not seen this one, I will start. So this film is based off of Ikiru, which is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, is one of the most famous films ever made. Is one of made by one of the greatest directors of all time, Akira Kurosawa. And I didn't know that going into it, but the film tells you that at the top. The film says um, it is is it is one of the production companies was like. Um, Kurosawa Studios, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, wow. I didn't realize Kurosawa Studios was a thing in making movies. And then it says, based on the screenplay, Akiru by Akira Kurosawa. And I was like, ah, that makes sense. What proceeds from there is essentially a shot-for-shot remake of Akiru. Let me tell you, folks. That is a wildly disappointing thing to experience in real time. Imagine if how you will. Deep, how deep into it did you realize? Oh, it's immediate. It is It is immediate. Because again, they tell you at the top that it's based off of Akiru. So automatically I'm like, oh, okay. I've seen Akiru a million times. I love that movie. And then it, it like it's right away. Right away essentially a shot for shot remake of Akiru. And I have so many feelings about that, but I want to start broad. Imagine your favorite movie that is of some notoriety, the Godfather, uh, 2001, a space odyssey, citizen Kane, 
whatever. Imagine they made it again today in the same time period as it originally took place, which is a huge sticking point for me as well, and basically didn't change a fucking thing. You'd be sitting in there asking yourself, why would they do that? That is my reaction to this movie. I don't know what the point of it is. And I think by actually sticking so stringently to the shot for shot remake aspect of it, it loses a significant amount of the meaning of the original. And so to that end, I'll hammer, I will hammer on a few points. The first one is when you think of Akira Kurosawa, you probably associate him most with his samurai films. Because Akira Kurosawa made a ton of them, uh, and at least films that took place during that period. Uh, Yojimbo, Hidden Fortress, Seven Samurai, Ron, Kagamusha, Throne of Blood. Like, that was his thing, right? Um, he made some like other ones that weren't necessarily there. But you're, you, by and large, if you're picturing an Akira Kurosawa film that is not the film Akira, you are likely picturing him making a film in ancient, you know, medieval feudalistic Japan. And so when Akiru comes out, it's a really interesting diversion from where he was in his career, right? Because he isn't this um this guy who is make like he's not like a um oh Jesus, the guy who made early spring. Um Oh, it's going to fucking kill me. Yasujiro Ozu. Oh, I can't believe I got that right. Yasujiro Ozu. Um, Yasujiro Ozu, who who made like contemporary Japanese films um, where it, it's it's a, a look in you know, modern Japan. That was not Akira Kurosawa's bag. So all of a sudden he's making Akira, which is a very Yasujiro Ozu-like film. It is contemporary. And within it, you, you can start to kind of wonder how much of him is being expressed in this and how much of his own uh, meditations on, on dying meditations on the, the passing of uh, meaning and uh, social standards between the generations, the general dynamics of, of contemporary Japan. Right. And I, I emphasize that word contemporary. This film takes place in the same time period as that film. And what I think you really lose by doing that in a in a very, very large sense, this is a big sticking point for me, is the ability to examine contemporary work standards uh, and, and uh, gen- intergenerational cultural exchange and um, any sort of meditation on how to progress forward. Because that is kind of the open-ended nature of the story of Akiru, is that it's a man who is you know, planting a tree he will not know the shade of in some essence. He it does ultimately get to end up enjoying it for a brief moment. The very famous shot of um in this instance it's Bill Nighy doing the the homage to it in, on the swing set in, in the the snow, but in the original uh Takashi Shimura. And to remove the current aspect of it, that's what it lacks any semblance of thought or creativity stripped barren of an attempt at searching for meaning or to, to make any kind of 
analysis of the current state of affairs of the world. It's lazy. It's incredibly fucking lazy. Because if you're not going to if you're not going to do the bare minimum effort of modernizing the story so it can take place in a contemporary setting, whether that be contemporary Japan, the Japan of today, or in this instance, the London of today, you really are basically saying, I'm not going to fucking bother trying. And they didn't. It is a hollow film for that reason. It is not done especially well. Um, I think that Bill Nighy turns in a, a, a perfectly fine performance. Uh, I think the standout is Amy Lou Wood, who I think people might recognize if you've ever seen Sex Education. She is really, really a, a winning performance in this film. I was, uh, I was hesitant because she plays such like a bubbly and ditzy character in uh, mm-hmm. Sex Education, like a very non-serious character. I was almost a little bit worried that I was going to be in for uh, a lackluster performance. She's great. Um, And I think offers a lot of the emotional resonance of the film. But if you're familiar with the film Akiru, which is, I know, unfair, but if you're going to tell me at the top that it is Akiru, I feel like I'm not going to be able to separate it out from my head while watching it. To have it be literally Akiru is so fucking tough because it, you don't get to remake films shot for shot and have nothing to say about it. Uh, I've talked for a long time. I want to give you room to make any comments about any of the things that I've said, even irrespective of the fact that you have, uh, I know, not seen the film. Um, I would like to remind the audience, uh, if there is one, that uh, Akiru was one of only two films uh along with i think elvis that i gave zeros to because i just i couldn't i couldn't get through the film which um it really doesn't actually deserve a zero i just i personally couldn't get through it that's a me issue not a kurosawa or kuro issue um i will say on that regard i'm glad i did not drive an hour um burning up quite a lot of relationship capital to go see this. But I am perplexed as to why you would spend this movie to recreate a film shot for shot. I I can't think of any other instance of this occurring without it being like you said, built upon or or you know adapted for you know modern excuse me modern audiences can you think of any that you know even come close um Gus Van Sant's Psycho starring Vince Vaughn absolute Vince garbage Vaughn, are you unaware Vince of this movie Vaughn starred in a Psycho remake directed by Gus Van Sant yes um Michael Henneke remade his own movie, um, Funny Games. Is Van Zandt related to Steve Van Zandt? No. Um, Michael Henneke remade his own movie, Funny Games, in English, like 10 years after it came out, which is not very good, which is a real, real shame because Michael Henneke, like doesn't really make bad movies, so it's kind of nuts. Um, And funny enough, I kept thinking... While watching this, one of the other instances where this is effective, 
the shot for shot remake business also involves Akira Kurosawa, which is a fistful of dollars, which is a shot for shot remake of Yojimbo done by Sergio Leone, but takes place in the West. And they, there are no changes to the story, but the changing in the setting offers something that is different and unique. And the personification of the characters is slightly modified in such a way that while the tone timbre and execution of the film is identical, there is kind of this fun difference where it's, it's not uh, uh, katanas. It's, it's six shooters, right? And it's not, these are arcane looking, um, not arcane looking, but uh, traditional looking Japanese villages and homes. It is uh, a, a dusty old, old West and it invites room for creative visual differences. And while there is like, I want to say there is some level of difference between the two films. There really isn't. It's weird that putting this film thousands of miles away in London doesn't change it at all all but it doesn't because one of the differences between yojimbo and um uh fucking fistful of dollars is that those two places are vastly different it's different time periods it's different uh social structures and it's different geographies the geographies of 1950s tokyo and 1950s London for all intents and purposes aren't horribly different when you consider the variance between urban urban bureaucratic infrastructure it's it's fundamentally not part of the film is the two main characters taking the train from their slightly outside of the city limits uh, residential homes into the city and then the cities itself aren't represented in such a way where they are characters of the film. It is very much so uh, taking place within the, the the building of the bureaucracy or uh, or the building of the the the, the governmental building um, or a, a a beach town, you know, some for the for the first excursion that the main character takes, which I think is handled really poorly in the uh, this this remake, in that um. Is confusingly shot. It is. It is too much focus given to the man he hung, he he hangs out with. Where I kind of forgot that this guy was in the movie in the in the original, and then they gave him like too much screen time. But it is also an avenue for Bill Nighy's, I think, best perform best best part of the film. Um, the one addition that this film does make that prevents it from being the one hundred percent true shot for shot remake that I have been complaining about is there is the addition of a character and the new character in this film is like a young guy, very like baby faced dude. It, it's like literally his first day when you meet him in the film. Um, and he is, uh, you know, trying to figure it out. And you, it, it, it's not an interesting character because he, I guess is meant to, in some ways maybe portray the future right a young man stepping up and uh being the picture of change that bill nighy on his way out was trying to instill the problem is the film doesn't want to deviate from the structure of the original story so his character ends up kind of becoming meaningless and in fact his character disappears for quite a significant chunk of the film because there is no way to fit that character into this movie 
when he then does rematerialize later on in the film, doesn't have a lot to do and doesn't his introduction doesn't really affect the film at all in the way that you were kind of expecting it or hoping it to. So it ends up being kind of a superfluous change that I think a writer tried to imbue with meaning and fell flat on its face. Um, I don't know, man. It's <laughs> could you imagine if they remade, um, like shot for shot, they remade um The Godfather, but it takes place in like Los Angeles. <sighs> still, still, still in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, still about you know the mob. Uh, but it's just like now it's Los Angeles now. It's so ludicrous. Or like if they did it with like the Yakuza. But it's the same shit. Like, yeah, that's um that's not a movie I would see. Like, I love The Godfather. It deserves to be up there in the upper echelon of cinema. Just cinema, no matter how you look at it. I don't think I would go see that film if they remade it because there's no way it lives up to that bar and there's no reason to watch it. If it's a shot for shot remake with nothing else, I've seen that film. I've seen the best version of that film. No one gains anything on any end of the spectrum for doing so. And that's the... I can acknowledge that this film is not bad. I want to make that clear. This is not a bad movie. This is, if you remove the fact it is a shot for shot remake of one of the greatest movies ever made. It is not a bad movie. It's perfectly fine. I I would say it still isn't horribly effective, but it is perfectly fine. I would also offer that one of the reasons it's not horribly effective is because it is it's easy to write off the bureaucracy as being uh, dated to a point that we have progressed past, even though that might not be true, because it is set in such a uh, bygone era, which, again, is one of the things that made Akiru effective. It is contemporary. This film being uh, 70 years in the past it makes some of these, you know, the, the, looking at these giant stacks of paper feel so ludicrous because it's like, well, we have email now. Like, that's not real. And it, it strips away some of the realities that Akira Kurosawa was trying to display and instead makes them look like silly, goofy antiquities. Uh, but regardless, this film is nice. Like, Bill Nighy puts in a nice performance. Uh, the film is very, very pleasant to look at. Um, as I said, Amy Lou Wood is, I, I really, I hope that she is able to parlay this into a, a very nice career because coming off of sex education, I didn't expect to see her in anything big and she is darling in this movie. Um, And even Bill Nighy, I was a little bit worried that he was going to be goofy because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure 90% of my exposure to Bill Nighy is in the Cornetto trilogy. I agree. And so I was kind of worried, like, are you going to be too funny? And uh, instead, his the charm, the palpable Bill Nighy charm that is in those movies is what cuts through. And he is, in fact, a 
rather somber figure that I think works very well. Um, but it is, uh, it's not great. And it's a movie I, that you'd want to be great because it is trying to emulate something great. And it is, it is absolutely not great, but it is fine. If that makes all sense. Rating out of five. Probably a three. If you are, again, if you are an Oscars completionist, this is not a hard movie to watch. I mean, it's a hard movie to get a hold of, but it's not a hard movie to watch. If you're not like a film person, you might end up liking this more because you don't have a reference point. I'm not saying that as as a as a criticism. Like, if you haven't seen Akira before and you don't care to, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to watch Akira. Like, it, you'll be okay in life. Um, and it might lead you to like this more because you don't have that thing to compare it to. But speaking on the basis of you know quote unquote film people you're going to be frustrated watching it you're going to be very frustrated watching it and i can't believe this is getting an adapted screenplay nomination because i absolutely believe it doesn't deserve it um but that's the second movie in that category that i've said this about so what do i know oof actually the third actually the fourth actually i hate this category holy shit Wow, actually, that category is garbage this year. Woof. Fingers crossed on After Sun. It's not in uh, Adapted Screenplay. Uh, I was looking at Best of the Actor. Oh, yeah, I know. I'm rooting for Colin Farrell for that, but Adapted Screenplay is just trash this year. Holy shit. It's like original screenplay is just popping, and then Adapted Screenplay is yuck. Anyway, anyway, so those are the two movies. Wow. That... I never thought Top Gun would have a an inside chance of winning Best Adapted Screenplay. It's kind of <laughs> insane, right? <laughs> a film that refuses to tell you who the bad guy is. You know, the guys. The enemy. The enemy. The enemy. The baddies. Um, I hope they make a third movie and just dig deeper and just straight up call them the baddies. What was, um, what was Sarah Palin's nickname when she was running with John McCain in 08? Um, God, do you remember like she had like, they, it was at that time when there was the, the big fucking to do around having like a, a nickname to a company, um, John McCain's, because he was he was the maverick. Sarah Barracuda is what Wikipedia says. What's what is this website? I also Sarah? see Barracuda, but that's definitely not what I'm thinking of. Because she had there was a nickname. I know that there was a nickname. The half baked Alaskan. Caribou Barbie. Regardless, whatever her nickname was during that election cycle, that should be the the third movie. Anywho, um, we will talk more in depth about these awards in a couple weeks. The Oscars are rapidly approaching, so we are going to be actually picking three films for our next episode to make sure that we can wrap up the major categories on time. Uh, so to that end, the next, next week's films will be 
after Sun, currently nominated for Best Lead Actor, which will round out that category. Blonde, which is nominated for Best Lead Actress, and To Leslie, which is also nominated for Best Lead Actress, which will then round out that category for us. Uh, so we will talk talk about it. Uh, Corin, have you watched any of the other Oscar nominees uh, in your spare time lately? What a what a joke! Spare I time. Know. <laughs> I know. Uh, I will say I have watched all of the best animated features. I have watched all the best animated shorts, and I'm about halfway through the best animated, best uh, live action shorts. So, uh, I have have any openings. Huh? Does your company have any openings? Not for you, bitch. (laughs) Um, But we'll get into those when we have our Oscars roundup episode. I have some favorites I'm really rooting for, especially in the animated shorts category, but discussion for another day uh all right so after sun blonde to leslie check check them out after that we'll only have two other movies that we'll be talking about before we head into the actual award ceremonies so getting close um in the meantime if you'd like to follow the show on twitter you can do so at uh big screen juice if you'd like to follow corwin on twitter you can do so at corwin heller if you'd like to follow myself on twitter you can do so at joshua d tracy if you'd like to send emails to the show you can do so at juice the big screen at gmail.com and until next time you all Bye. Bye.